very often when we are on Zoom, we kind of, we're kind of close to the camera. And so you're staring at this like really big face. And there's a, a space where there's a bunch of faces looking at you and we perceive it is inherently dangerous. So we don't necessarily understand that. Well, like we don't we don't do it consciously, but uh, really our brain perceives a threat. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. And today's discussion centers around a massive issue, one that is integrated into all of our lives in one way, shape or form, either from when we were children or as parents or as part of our job, as was with me. And that is education and notions of learning. And somewhat of a launching point for this discussion that I'm having today with a good friend and colleague, uh, Elena Kusnikova. I think I'm saying that incorrectly, but um, I cannot say it unless I hear Elena speak it to me five seconds before I say it. So <laughs> it's actually not that hard, but for some reason, I, it's like a mental block. So um, Elena, I'm sorry. I record these introductions separately, so I don't have you here to correct me. But most importantly, uh, she is an expert in the field of educational psychology and works especially in the realm of connection or nexus between education and technology. And for all the things the pandemic was or still is um, and the ways it affected us, I think it's generally agreed that um, the impact it had on education um, just in terms of the immediate steps taken with school shutdowns or rolling kind of shutdowns or the preventative measures put in place to um, reduce the chance of transmission um, within the schools, but also in terms of the technology brought in, that the way that technology was seen as a potential means to mitigate um, at a minimum some of these problems. And this is obviously something that uh, had a significant direct effect on me. I have been a university instructor or professor or what have you for um, well over a decade now, and um, it was somewhat of a shock to the system to spend the better part of two academic years um, teaching all of my classes on Zoom. So I, um, I'm curious in this uh, analytically and from the outside looking in, but also I'm obviously speaking as someone who was in the mix. And, and I would imagine that's the case for a lot of you. Um, or perhaps it was something you experienced uh, having your children attend Zoom classes and so forth, right? And so, uh, and, and in some ways, I think it's interesting, we're going to talk a little bit about how to think about the in intersection of education and technology jumping off with the pandemic experience um, as a motif. I mean, obviously, the pandemic accelerated certain things, but this is nothing new. Um, notions that education um, or the internet is going to revolutionize education and, and do all of these things and what kind of promises uh, we once had versus what we really know or try to know about the intersection of technology and education. But taking a step back, I think, and this is where the conversation moves to, and I think it's really quite interesting, is, is thinking about these kinds of questions about, like, what does it mean to learn something, um, which can seem somewhat 
intuitive or obvious, but becomes a little bit more difficult once you scratch the surface, or at least more complicated and hard to get at、um, in terms of what we really mean by learning.、Um, and also, kind of this big question that I heard.、Um, Brought up on on a podcast I used to listen to quite regularly. I, I haven't been able to listen to as much recently. Called the Weeds,、um, they do a lot of work on public policy and education. And one of the hosts of that show brought up this question about like what are what what are the purpose of schools? What are they supposed to do?、Um, what are, what you know what goals? And I think that speaks to not just in the United States but elsewhere the longstanding and ongoing,、um, very politically fraught nature of schools and in. Centered around this very question as what schools are supposed to be doing, and more broadly in terms of my line of work and the profession I'm in and Elena's in, like what are universities supposed to do?、Um, and of course, these belie very simple answers like do X or do Y. But I think we still are in a world where we,、um, the public, the people, what have you, have very different ideas about what these. Entities, these social entities、um, and institutions, from grade school to middle school, high school, university, even graduate school. There's a big, kind of a lot of hand wringing I know, and particularly in U.S.、Um, research institutions, about what kind of ethical obligations they have to their students and the ones they admit,、um, especially given the extreme. Difficulty of the academic job market.、Um, you know, in some disciplines, it's it's extremely dire, with almost zero chances of landing a permanent、um, or tenure track faculty position. So this runs the gamut from you know questions about first and second grade all the way up to、um, questions surrounding students pursuing PhDs and and so forth. So, and I think.、Um, I'm so fortunate, and this is one of the cool things about working at a university is that I have a lot of questions and things that I'm curious about in this realm. And then, you know, it's like, well, fortunately, one of my good friends、uh, happens to be a professional academic in the field of educational psychology, teaching and working, you know, on these things directly. So、um, I have a person right down the hall that I can ask to come on the show and talk to me about it. So that's a. I guess one of the cooler things about working at a university. So briefly, I'm going to just give you a little introduction to Elena Kuznikova, which again I know I'm saying this wrong. Sorry. As I've indicated, Elena works here with me at Akita International University. She's an assistant professor in the Global Connectivity Program.、Um, she's originally from Russia and got her PhD in educational psychology at the Ohio State University. Um, I'm going to say the Ohio State University because I know it's very important to Ohio State alums. I find it a bit pretentious personally, but that's how they that's how they like it. So I'm going to say the Ohio State University.、Um, and she, in pursuing her PhD, she really fell in love with all things education and technology.、Um, she really loves to teach and study applications of virtual reality and games and other technologies in teaching and learning across different contexts.、Um, she really likes funk and metal music, Dungeons and Dragons, hiking. And open water diving.、Um, so you know she's、uh, just started at AIU here a year, maybe two years ago, a year and a half ago.、Um, it's just been great to get to know her. She really is one of the sharpest minds、uh, I've been fortunate enough to meet、um, on these areas of education and thinking about creative ways to make the classroom or make quote unquote learning、um, a much more interesting, enjoyable, and fruitful exercise for students、um, across. 
different periods in their educational career. Uh, I learned a good amount just from the conversation, and it actually helped me think a little bit more critically about things that I do in the classroom or things I can do in the classroom. Um, and so I think above and beyond the more abstract discussion about what is learning and what school should be doing. I think if you're in the field of education or have a child that's pursuing education at, at any level, some of her thoughts and ideas are quite practical in a very immediate sense um, beyond their kind of broader theoretical and social implications. So without further ado, we're just going to hop into the episode. As always, I would ask you to please um, share this with anybody, share the Substack site, um, ask them to subscribe. If you're not a subscriber, just go ahead and do that. I try not to post too frequently so your inbox won't be flooded. And, you know, please just do what you can to um, spread the word to your friends and family. Um, or if you don't like it, spread it to your enemies. All right. Thanks so much. And let's get to the conversation. All right, Elena Kuznesova, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And, um, you know, it, there is just quite a bit of churn going around um, in, in the, the global political environment, um, the United States and elsewhere. Uh, so it, it seems it's interesting. Um, a lot of people during the pandemic kind of predicted this, those who had studied previous pandemics, that um, rather than being some sort of grandiose exit or or some, you know, thing that we would just be on our minds for a while, it, it would just kind of fade out. And um, in some ways, that seems how this is playing out, that the pandemic, rather than formally ending, I mean, it has the, the, you know, the cases and everything have gone down quite a bit. It's far less deadly. But interestingly, it's just kind of been overtaken as much as anything else. Absolutely. But yes. that said, I think for, you know, and this is, you know, you have a background in, in ed education and technology. And that's why I think you're one of the you know, best people we could have on here to talk to. One place where the legacies of the pandemic, and, and I think this is no news for people working in, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, even universities like us, um, that the impact the pandemic had on educational institutions, it continues to be quite significant um, in a host of different ways. And and for better or for not, and, and probably in many ways um, due to necessity, um, there was a lot of debate around that. The pandemic kind of created a, an experiment in using all sorts of different technological modalities in, in ways that hadn't been used before to kind of provide educational services in the context of the pandemic. Um, and I think that raises a lot of interesting questions about education and technology and, and, and its kind of effects. So, you know, you and you were in the United States finishing up grad school and so forth at this time. Like, what, what are your thoughts about that? Like, you know, if I just throw those keywords like education, technology, pandemic, kind of how would you react to that? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it's not that the pandemic kind of introduced those modes of technology in education because uh, we've been using them before. It's just we became reliant on those modes for education to even happen, right? Um, and I think we, we learned a lot of lessons during the pandemic in relation to technology and education, but it's nothing really incredibly new in terms of educational science, right? Because 
we've always known that uh, this the component of being there in person and, and socializing and this like uh, real-time in-person communication is incredibly important. And as much as Zoom, you know, helped us out when we couldn't be together um, in the same space, it definitely lacks that component. Um, and I mean, Zoom is only one of the instruments that has been used throughout the pandemic, right? But it certainly became one of the main instruments. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but really, you know, it opened up kind of this this space for debate in terms of, okay, going forward, how much integration do we actually want in terms of technology and education? And um, what formats are going to stay and what formats are going to go away? So for example, um, you know, many students and, and not just students, everyone, teachers, students, um, notice that online education is not really the same. And some people refer to it's not the same quality. Some people say that it's not the same. It just doesn't feel right. Um, and I think it really speaks to the social nature of education. So one of the really big um, aspects of technology use in education is do we really consider the social component, right? And so when we use Zoom, um, there's there's a lot of research, maybe not not a lot, but there's there's some research on that where people try to analyze sort of the psychological reaction um, that that we have to to each other, and it's really fascinating because our brain just cannot pick up on the same signals um, as we pick up in person. And even though there is, you know, the, the lag that we see on the screen is really not that significant, but our brain really does not form the same social connections when we do it on Zoom. And uh, one of the things that I found really interesting was that um, very often when we are on Zoom, we kind of, we're kind of close to the camera. And so you're staring at this like really big face and there's a space where there's a bunch of faces looking at you and we perceive it is inherently dangerous. So we don't necessarily understand that. Well, we don't we don't do it consciously, but uh, really our brain perceives a threat. And so now imagine if you have several classes or maybe meetings um, for several hours. Right. And then and this entire time, your brain just feels threatened the whole wow. the whole meeting so no wonder by the time we're done with zoom we're super tired um that that's one of the explanations of zoom fatigue uh, right well and you're also just a, you're also looking at as you as you i'm sure you experienced um you know we we're teaching here at aiu um uh, on zoom and uh you were often looking at like maybe not even hostile but like the the sheer pain and boredom in their eyes could be <laughs> And so one of my favorite, this was like one way that I, I found to have a bit of fun during um, our Zoom years on on um, teaching was uh, I would surreptitiously take a screenshot and then I would upload it to the chat. So I was like, this is what I'm looking at. Okay, <laughs> folks, like just just put yourself in my shoes. And it always they, they laughed a bit. That was a bit of a way to kind of break the ice, <laughs> but they, just to show them what the world looked like to me. <laughs> I tried to. All right. Yeah. But go ahead. So no, that's an interesting thought, right, that that our minds, the way, you know, that we perceive that in some ways, uh, even subconsciously as a threat. Um, is an interesting kind of motif I didn't really think about. And and there's not a thing that I, I was thinking about that a lot um, when I had to teach on Zoom or take Zoom classes. And that is, you can use Zoom and other technology tools in different ways. Um, in some ways, Zoom, Zoom, Zoom allows certain capabilities that or certain opportunities that 
might not be as accessible in, in the normal classroom. Um, for example, I think that breakout rooms give students enough privacy and just kind of like it's it's their own space. And, you know, if they get together and they, and they do their group work there, it's a really good tool. And then they have uh, the whiteboard that's um, a built-in tool in, in Zoom, at least in the latest updates. And they mm -hmm. can use all of this other technology tools that come in really handy. It's really easy to share links and, and resources dynamically, which I think is one of the strongest um, points in terms of online education, at, at least synchronous online education, right? So if I'm thinking about a video or a link or an article, I can immediately pull it up and put it on the screen, share screen, and then everybody sees the same thing. So that is really nice. But at the same time, uh, very often I saw teachers bringing their traditional classroom approaches. And when I say traditional, in this case, it's kind of teacher-centered, lecture-based approach. And I think this is where, this is the death of online education, really, because um, it's much worse when you have to experience that in an online environment. I mean, yeah, you can be in your pajamas, you know, lying in bed. That's, that's I guess, a nice part. But then many students mention that they just can't focus. So you lose your focus and the teacher loses control, right? So this idea of control using technology and, and kind of control in a classroom really stood out to me during the pandemic because I saw a huge increase in the usage of software that um, allows teachers to control what students do um, on their, you know, on their, on their laptops. I actually saw that I was working on a project in the United States and it was um, elementary school. And they had a software where the teacher could see the screen of each of the student's computer. So um, basically the, the teacher kind of could control what the students were doing. So that sounds terrible. Um, yeah. Do you have like a link or something? I you, just for a friend <laughs> might be interesting. I mean, you know, I might. Yeah, just send me. It sounds so terrible. I want to. How much would it run? Can I use my research money to buy? <laughs> Um, no, but it does. I really does sound dystopic. Um, so go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's um. So at that moment, I figured, you know, and and of course, it's it was a particular type of school, you know, in in the United States. Um, they were definitely it was in the how should I put it? It was one of the schools that uh, get uh more they get more children with maybe behavioral problems and discipline, and so. Uh, we didn't. I didn't see the same trend in other schools that were also part of that research. Um, but this idea of control, I think it was a running theme throughout the whole pandemic because when you're in a classroom, you kind of naturally as a teacher have control, right? Um, in that you see everyone, you see what they're doing. Um, they can't turn their screen off because they are there in person. And um, it just in general, it's a much simpler uh, kind of med classroom management experience. But when we get to the online space, suddenly at any given point, they can just turn it off. They, If they don't want to be in your classroom, they close their laptop and they're gone. And there's nothing you can do, right? And if they turn off the camera, then you have absolutely no idea what's happening there. They might be sleeping for all you know, and I'm sure some of them do. Um, <laughs> so from this perspective, uh, teachers started using more control strategies. And for example, Turn, you have to keep your mic and, um, well, usually it's video. Keep your video on. Sometimes it's keep your microphone on if it's a smaller classroom. Um, and it really 
I think could be counterproductive uh, because again, one of the strongest advantages, one of the biggest advantages of um, online education is that it can happen at any uh, place at, at, and at any point in time, right? And so the, the idea of maybe being able to take, let's say a history or Japanese course while I'm cooking in my kitchen, which I did several times when I took courses online, I'm not gonna lie. It was it was really amazing, right? Um, and taking that opportunity away and kind of saying, "Hey, I, I'm going to monitor everything you do. You have to follow this rule, otherwise you can't be part of this classroom." Now that is a very teacher centric approach. And if and if we only know one thing about technology and education is that teacher centric approaches don't really work well. It's all about student um, centric uh, teaching methods mostly. Right. No. And one thing that, that made me think of kind of, you know, my own experience, because for better or for not, I was a, a Zoom teacher for two years, basically. Um, that was how the majority of our classes were delivered for, for two years here at AIU. In, in one thing, they, there was this, you know, a kind of general policy that they were supposed to keep their cameras on. Um, but I just basically, I asked them to, and I explained why it can, you know, it gives me some semblance of, of, of having some of a, uh, somewhat of a classroom, but at the same time, I didn't compel them. One thing I've learned after years of, of working in education at different levels, um, is like, don't pick battles you can't win. Right. Yeah. So like one is just, but the other one in, in, in probably more substantive is that, yeah, I mean, they're in their home. That's kind of a private space. And, that, you know, people might have very compelling reasons for why they don't want, you know, their home broadcasted, you know, mm -hmm. and I felt that that like demanding that like we be, you know, you offer a kind of video portal into your house, like it was, was a bit much. And, and maybe a lot of students, it didn't matter. And they had their own room or their, you know, parents were at work or, or what have you, they had, it, but maybe some students didn't, you know, and like, that to me always struck me as like, I'm not going to, you know, for that reason alone, that was enough that I'm not going to make somebody turn their camera on. Because again, there could be very good reasons for why they don't want to do that. Right. And I mean, to, to play the devil's advocate here, there are certainly ways to uh, to overcome that challenge. Um, for example, you can blur the background or you can have an entirely different background. Now, it doesn't right. take care of the problem 100%, but you could argue that there are ways, there are workarounds. Right. Yeah. But it, it was just the idea of like, well, I was kind of more inviting the idea of just like control. Like I'm not, you know, I'm going to ask you to do something, but I'm not going to control you and like force you to do this stuff. You know, that's just, I mean, that's kind of how I am with the, with the devices in general. I mean, I try to encourage them and give them reasons why I think it's a, a better environment to do X, but at the same time, like I, I'm just tell them I, I'm, I'm not like a disciplinarian and, and like, that's just not my role. So yeah. I'm not going to be running around like putting out every little fire um, because that's not useful either. That's kind of how I, that, so I mean, basically that, that's the same approach I take to devices in the classroom, which is a whole nother technology crashing into an educational space that is uh, highly fraught. That's something that's really changed. I asked students to close their, their laptops yesterday while some students were, were giving a talk and um, mm -hmm. they looked very upset. And <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, I'm not, I don't think you're doing anything bad or nefarious. Uh, I just said, like, I've been doing this for a long time. And if you're talking in front of people and someone's like staring at a screen typing, it really can be um, deflating. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and I'm old and weathered and it doesn't affect me so much, but you have younger people who have probably not done a lot of public speaking and it can be really deflating. So, and I think they were, they understood after that. 
you know, but yeah. Um, yeah, but, but it, it, you see, it's also one of those things when I could have zero devices around me and look directly at the presenter, but then think about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight and just completely right. daydreams. Like if mm. it's, it's more about, or, you know, um, if, if you take a different situation, I can have my laptop right next to me and have all of the distracting notifications. But if I'm really interested in what's going on, it's not going to distract me. So it, I think it's, it's more about their, the interest and motivation and kind of the, the flow of the class as opposed to um, having or not having technology. Although certainly it introduces more distractors, that's for sure. Mm. I'm a, I'm a big both and it's like a both and and not an either or kind of because that's how I look yeah, at yeah. it. Like, I think it, it, it you know, you I, absolutely what you're saying is true. Like it is important to try to um, have the class flow in a way that's compelling, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, look, uh, quite honestly, like if, you, if you're going to close your laptop and think about dinner, but, but be respectful and, and give in, you know, give some physical kind of attention, at least to the people up front, I'm, you know, fair enough, you're an adult, do it. Mm-hmm. You know, but there, I think it's important also to to give an expectation for a certain manners. And I often put it in a way of like when you're up there, you'll want people to give attention to you. And and there's a lot of research out there that even like people clicking on their keyboards can distract other people who are next to them who aren't. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's not something that's just contained to one person. There's been a lot. I, I read a really interesting study about that, that. Um, people who sit next to people who are like clacking on keyboards. I'm really attention. I have like a lot of attention issues. And so it can, it doesn't, it's not like confined just to that one person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. 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 So, um, but, and, but at the same time, like I said, that I, I, the only time I really enforce those kinds of things is when their classmates are up there. And that's another distinction. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm up there, I just, you know, I, I ask at the beginning of the class to try to minimize device use, but I said, I don't go around putting little fires, but I do say when your classmates are up there, I have a different standard because again, a lot of them are maybe nervous already or don't have a lot of experience. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, and so that, I kind of have two different standards depending on who's in front of the classroom. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I, I understand uh, and it makes a lot of sense, but I was thinking also just in general, you know, uh, the, the topic that I brought up in terms of teaching control, it really speaks to the issue of how we structure education in general. And really, when we talk about technology and education, very often it's kind of served as this like kind of hyped up kind of thing, right? Especially when it comes to artificial intelligence. I'm so tired of hearing about how artificial intelligence is going to change education because like <laughs> so far it hasn't changed much. And I mean, artificial intelligence is not there yet, right? But really, um, I think very often we, we kind of look at technology as a silver bullet to solve right. the problems that we couldn't figure out on our own. But really, it it's all of the research that I've read, at least so far, it all points to the same idea, which is technology is just a tool. And so if you use it incorrectly, the problems are going to get worse. And it doesn't, it, it can't do anything that um, good pedagogy can, you know, can, you know. So in other words, um, the, sa- the same thing with Zoom, right? Obviously, we didn't really have much choice when it came to the pandemic time. But um, again, you could still choose to either adjust your curriculum and your teaching style to this new reality and, and meet students where they are. Or you could choose. And of course, you know, the teachers had very little time to prepare those types of uh, to prepare for this type of change. Or you could choose um, to stick to what you do in a traditional classroom. And I think for 
class for, for, for courses where teachers chose to just stick to what they usually do, especially again, if it's teacher centric, this is where issues started happening. This is where we had the problems, right? Um, and most of the students that I talked to, they all say the same thing, which is if it's a lecture and if we don't get to participate, then that was a pretty bad experience. But if we get to do active stuff, then most of the time, even though it's on Zoom, it was still quite a positive learning experience. And I think that's important to consider. No, for sure. I mean, in, in some ways, the podcast that we're recording now um, it largely grew out of um, an effort to try to shake things up and make it more, make the class, my class, the classes I was teaching more Zoom amenable. And so I, I moved a lot of the um, discussions that I would lead. And I, and I do think there is a place for that because hopefully a good lecture helps them kind of point them in directions of connections that they might not have thought of or, or so forth. Right. And so mm -hmm. I didn't want to yield that totally. But I moved a lot of those to podcasts that the students, you know, generally listened to and, and liked and then was able to then like kind of put that in, in the podcast sphere and then use more, like you said, you know, breakout rooms and, and this and that and co collaborative activities on, on during our Zoom time. And, and, and not only did it make the students happier, it made me happier. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I think that. Yeah. So in some weird way, this podcast is a outgrowth of, of such a kind of trying to shake things up for the for you know the different format or, or vehicle of, of, of running a class for sure yeah and that this is wonderful yeah yeah no that and, and I said it, I think it, I've found it to be like a real I always think like what does what does every faculty member at a university often what would they like is like just a, a nice 15 or 20 minutes to just frame like whatever usually the you know topics go by weeks generally mm -hmm. um, and that's what I use it for. You know, just flip on the microphone, not very little preparation in terms of notes and just kind of talk from my own sense of like what we're going to be doing this week, why it's important, how it connects to things we discussed before. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really, yeah, it's really easy. So I continue to do these even after that um, pandemic. So I, I found it to be a really useful format. Right, right. Okay. So, well, and, and that gets into, I mean, one thing I liked what you said is that, um, Often we we look to technology to to kind of fix problems or or solve problems um, and, and and be this kind of magic magic fix or solution, right? And and to me, this is where I, I think we had mentioned we discussed before. Um, I, you know, I, thinking about how I kind of come at things and and how I think about things. I often think of technology as often seen as a silver bullet that's going to fix the drastic inequalities, particularly in the United States, but certainly not only in the United States, between schools in wealthier areas, um, even public schools in wealthier areas versus those that are in, in higher poverty um, areas. And that it's a, it might sound kind of trite, but I think it, it speaks to the bigger issue is that like if you have kids that are living in areas with high levels of poverty and, and a whole host of social issues that comes along with that, um, you can put an iPad in all of their hands and, and give them some Google Classroom or something, but they're still like coming to school often um, underfed or or dealing with a lot of you know crises in the home or even if they're in a stable home they're dealing with crises in their neighborhood or you know so like giving everybody like like oh well, well we're going to fix this this problem by giving all these students iPads and it's like well the the underlying problem is I always think of that Bob Marley line like the destruction of the poor is in the poverty you know it's <laughs> like you know, um, uh, in that, you know, and, and I don't, th and I think that people advocating that are, are could be totally well-meaning. Um, and I don't think they're doing it for like callous reasons, but it's like, I think it's kind of papering over 
things. And as you said, it, it, it can often be um, ineffective. But I know you were probably thinking about it in a different way, but that's kind of what I always think about when I think about the, mir- the miracle of technology, right? Uh, that, that actually reminds me, when I was a graduate student, we had a guest speaker, um, a very famous researcher in the field of educational psychology. And I'm obviously blanking on the name because me and names apparently are not compatible. <laughs> I just can't mm-hmm. remember names. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I, I remember that he was, in, and still probably is, a very, very big name in the field of educational psychology. And one of the first opening statements of the talk was basically this. About 75, I think, 75 or 80 percent of all educational outcomes can be attributed to socioeconomic status of the student. Right. Honestly, wasn't the best way to open the talk because after that, I was like, then what are we doing here? Like, what's what's the point of my education? You know, I was I kind of had a little uh, crisis right there <laughs> during mm. the talk. Uh, but really, it speaks to the issue that you brought up, which is a lot of the things and the problems that we're trying to solve in education, they have to be solved first and foremost at, at homes um, and maybe even at a societal level, right? So what we, we work with, it's like those remaining 20 to 25%. We can still make a difference, but I think um, when people say, okay, so the, so the, the view of technology uh, and the access to technology is a little bit simplistic, I think, because they say, if every student has the same device, and access to the same resources, they're going to do better. But they forget about things outside of that, right? So, you, you know, technology skills is, is an obvious one. And just even the, the motivation to, to even do something with this technology, because, okay, you, you can have your, your phone or your tablet, but you use it for something. It's not just the thing that kind of magically transforms you into a different human being. You use it as a tool to, to reach your goals. And so... If students don't have um, educational goals for themselves or, you know, if they don't want to learn, then they're not, this this problem is not going to be fixed by giving them more tools, right? Because they don't have the the end goal. And and so um, I think really what we need to understand here and even, okay, let's take, let's take a different situation. For example, let's say students come from a relatively stable background, you know, they don't have those issues at home um, or maybe in, in their neighborhoods or local communities, but we are still putting them in the environment where the typical traditional educational approach is used, which is, um, let's take math as an example, because um, math seems to be a problematic subject for a lot of students, teachers, pretty much in every country that I know. And um, what they do is they say, to make sure that they learn math better, we're going to give them a couple of games that were built for this particular purpose. Or, you know, maybe we'll, we'll gamify the process and they're going to have those leader uh, leaderboards and, and uh, badges and, and rewards. So all of the typical elements of gamification. And then it doesn't really work. The, and the question is, so why? Um, and really to understand the answer to that, you need to understand kind of the, how we learn, right? And it, it's not necessarily, it, it, it's obviously, you know, it differs based on the context, but ideally when we learn, we always want to learn through experience and we want to learn in a context that is meaningful to us. And what we are learning, it should be something that we're trying to use as a tool, again, to reach our ends and view or our, our goals. 
Um, so if you're a math student and you come to class, let's say, and the teacher says, today we're talking about equations, and then they give you a bunch of drills on paper, right? It's not that much different from you coming to the classroom, uh, taking your iPad and then playing a game, which it might be more enjoyable on the surface. And in the first couple of weeks, you're going to be like, yay, I get to play a game. But then really you're doing the same thing. So nothing changes. You're studying equations, but you don't know why. And it's not really applicable to your immediate experience. I mean, I don't know about you. When I was studying equations, I was like, why do I need that? Like, is it, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to use them for anything. And really, I'm not using them for anything even, you know, in, in my current lifestyle, apart from research stuff. So we take technology and kind of say uh, it's going it's to make a difference, but we don't change fundamentally the educational approach. And what happens is we either don't see the results or we see very short-term results and they're very superficial. Um, while we really need to change the way we see education in general, and then if we use technology in that different framework, then it's more likely to be successful, successful and actually make a difference. It gets to this bigger question, one that I, um, you know, it's one of those I always say in, in classes, there's like all of these things that kind of populate our understanding of the social world, be it in politics or economics or um, just, you know, pop culture, what have you. And, and they kind of just float there. And, you know, I always remind, I think it was St. Augustine who was talking about time, maybe. He said, you know, I know what time is until you ask me what it is. <laughs> and I love that line. I think that was Augustine. If it's not, I, I'm, you know, but I believe that was Augustine. And I think, and I think about that with learning. I know what learning is until you ask me what learning is. <laughs> um, you know, it's one of those concepts, right? And um, I, and I guess this has really become much more something on my mind um, now that I have a three-year-old and not because I'm like thinking about his education, but just, I'm just, I'm really freaking blown away by like how his mind absorbs things. And I mean, just to give a really silly example, I, I think I, I, I've complained to you about people not respecting the crosswalks. <laughs> so I yell at people. I'm just like, Hey, slow down. And I always go, geez. And then like, I mean, it was like a year ago when he was just starting to talk a lot and like we were crossing the street and like someone like, you know, kind of didn't slow down enough. And he goes, geez, he goes, he goes, hey, slow down. Jeez. And I was like, how'd you? And you really realize that like there's like this sponge that, you know, and it's 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 almost frightening because then you really start thinking like, geez, man, he's just watching everything we do. And like and so it's really made me realize like that we're kind of have this innate kind of learning, right? So there's, there's that aspect, like he's just learning by just being around us and, and obviously taking these things in, in a, in a really rapid way. I mean, that's, what's just really shocked me. I've, I've, you know, the difference between like being around kids as like my friend's kids or like nieces or nephews or what have you, and like having your own child there day to day, it's just like how rapid and massive, like the info, the information and processing like intake is not to put it like a computer. And, and so there's like learning in that way. But I don't think we're meaning that, right? When we talk about like a classroom, like like let's say junior high or something. But I don't even know what what do we mean? <laughs> because it really, it is like, I don't know. I mean, like you could say like, okay, there was an equation I didn't know and now I know it. So is that learning? I mean, is it just knowing stuff we didn't know before? I don't know. So Elena, help us out. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I'm lost. Um, I'm actually teaching a course on learning and technology right now. When we had a class, when I asked students to brainstorm what learning is, and mm. and they had this really puzzled look on their face, even after uh, you know 
a lot of brainstorming. And I think that's because the answer to your question is, it depends. Um, and honestly, when you talk to an educational psychologist, which is my background, if you ask them a question about education and they give you a specific answer without it depends on the context, then you probably shouldn't trust them. <laughs> Uh, because it really depends, right? Um, and right. there are tons of different theoretical perspectives. Um, and like, for example, if you take the perspective of behaviorism, right, that you, you've probably heard about Pavlov's dog and conditioning, sure. right? Um, B.F. Skinner yeah. and behavior. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the idea there is we can't uh, study the mind because it's a black box. So we're going to study everything that kind of uh, forms an input that goes into the mind and then the output. And the only output you can really measure is behavior. So they said learning is basically a visible change in behavior based on mm. some kind of stimulus, right? So that's kind of what I was describing with, with, with my poor son, who's, who the input was me, like his crazy dad yelling at drivers. And then the output was him mimicking that behavior. Right. But then you, you get in the situations when, let's say, if you had two kids and, you know, twins, for example, and one of them picks it up and the second one doesn't. So in that case, you're like, okay, so something is happening there in their brain or inside the mind that changes the output. So you can't just really look at behavior alone, right? And right. Well, and not to drill down. I mean, we've I've, I've opened up this this silly example, so maybe we'll just keep keep it consistent. But I mean, I think even then, like, what really struck me was not just that he mimicked, but like he also could, had that sense of outrage because I carry, <laughs> I carry like a, it's like a, a qualitative sense of outrage. Right. And like, what really stuck with me is that I could sense from him. He not just imbibed like the words, he wasn't just mimicking, but he also like was sharing in the outrage, which is like, I think what you're saying is like a little bit of a deeper capturing of, of what was going on or like appreciation. And you're saying maybe another, you know, if I had another child, they just wouldn't, it wouldn't really jive with them. Like exactly. Way or, yeah. And it's, mm. it's really what you're describing is, um, there's a term for that, we can call it embodied experience, uh, which is, he experienced the situation and, and these words, it's not just, just empty sounds to him, right? He read the situation, he saw the outcomes of the situation, and he saw kind of how these words function in that environment. And so when a similar situation appeared, he found a pattern. And so he used kind of the pattern that, that was created in, in his mind, right? So um, this is kind of similar to how we learn in different cultures as well. I mean, both of us are living in Japan. Both of us are not from this culture. Um, and so uh, I'll give you a personal example. I was terrified to go to coffee shops and um, restaurants because, I mean, I have enough Japanese to navigate, but I didn't know the procedure. It was the same in the U.S., um, right, because originally I'm from Russia. And I just didn't have the social script. So I would come in, and what do I have to do? I look at how people do it. So I was right. kind of like your son in, in some way. So I, I would observe. I would, I would, you know, form those patterns in my mind. And then I would try to use them. And sometimes it would be uh, appropriate, and sometimes I would miss some points because, you know, Japanese culture is quite subtle. Um, right. But really, it's the same process. So... Um, what you're describing here is actually, um, if we talk about language learning, this is called acquisition as opposed to studying and learning. But in terms of educational psychology, the concepts that maybe could help you understand that come from the works of uh, Lev Pogotsky, who was a Soviet psychologist uh, in the 20th century. And he described two types of concepts. One type of concepts is spontaneous or um, kind of like 
non-scientific everyday life concepts. So this is these are the things that you learn directly from your experience. Okay, um, just like your son was able to learn um, how to react to those situations. <laughs> how, how to notice such a grave injustice in the world? <laughs> exactly. And speak out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then on the other hand, once we start schooling, schooling introduces uh, this kind of top-down scientific concepts. So those mm. are usually taught in a more abstract way. They are more structured. They are more interrelated. We, we tend to teach concepts in relation to other concepts. But if you have only one or only the other, you really don't get the same type of learning that happens when these two, the, the two of them meet, right? So in other words, I can learn the words geez and you know slow down just on paper. But then, uh, so that would be the top-down approach, right? Like kind of drill those words down. But I wouldn't know how to apply them to the situation because I like the everyday concept. I like the everyday experience. And so the combination of the two kind of forms this, this, this learning zone that allows you to go from um, the patterns that you create in the bottom-down approach, right? Just kind of, here's my life experience. But you, you abstract from them to a higher level and you start forming those, those kind of mental concepts that allow you to understand the world in the most schematic, more abstract way and so really, most of the abstractions that we have right now, they came from experience, right? They came from uh, empirical observations. And the problem with school is that very often we focus on the top-down approach. We focus on the scientific concepts, but they don't make sense without the corresponding everyday life experiences. And obviously, you know, if you teach, let's say, chemistry or physics, sometimes it might be really difficult to get those types of experiences and not necessarily that like history right so you 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 teach some um history courses and you you didn't leave um, can you remind me the the time frame that you're teaching? oh yeah it'd be like from like it's a it's called history of modern korea from like late 19th century to roughly the present okay so to me as a person who lives in the 21st century anything about 19th or 20th century is just an empty sound I can read all I want, but like, I didn't, I, I can't live in that environment, right? I don't feel what it's like. I can't really do it experientially. There are ways to get there to some extent, like um, role-playing games are a really good good way to do that. I, yeah, I do general. do a bit of that. Yeah. Um, I do some role-playing for sure. Yeah, but the idea is, um, that's why history is so hard to teach, because if you keep it at the level of abstraction and God forbid, road memorization, then it's just, it's this abstract thing. It's a meaning that is not situated in your life experiences. And from that perspective, true meaningful learning doesn't happen because um, you don't form those kind of, how should I put it? Can I give you an example from language learning? Because I think it's, yeah, I think it's kind of closer to our reality here. Um, I'm thinking about even the, yeah, even the word G's. Right. Let's let's take this as an example. I really like that. This is a wonderful example. Um, I can learn the letters. I can learn how to spell it. I can learn how to say it. Um, I can, you know, like I I have the concept of this word, but it's really abstract. And so the reason why many language learners cannot use words that they learn out of context, 
and even in context when it's just pure theoretical learning, is just they lack the situated context part, right? So because our brain is, is uh, it's really natural for our brain to form patterns, we're really, all we do is we think in patterns. So you can think about learning as kind of creating those patterns through observations and sometimes with the help of scientific concepts that we get, right? Um, and so un unless I see many different situations when somebody says, geez, right? Like, like what you said in front of your son or like, um, I don't know, a different example would be, geez, not again when I was looking out right. in the window today and it's just right. like this And Jesus. Now you've really got, now we've, we've we, you know, I like this. We've gone down quite a rabbit hole because Jesus, now that I've thought a little bit more about Jesus, it's like, it really is something like you say to yourself. It's kind of like internally directed. Yeah. You know? That's a good like point. Like I would, if I was alone, I would still say that. Yeah. So it's a weird, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> now, exactly. Yeah, and how could you explain that? It's like something you say, but it's like, it's, a, you know, because normally we think like, you, you know, if we're speaking ex extemporaneously or outwardly, it's, it's to... You know, but um, it's it's almost like I'm saying it for myself in a weird way. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of similar with the Japanese expression shoganai or shikataganai, which literally translates to nothing can be done. But like you need to hear them say it because it's 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 like this this passive acceptance of whatever is happening at the moment. It's like, well, you know, it is what it is kind of thing and it's like such a big part of the mentality as well and we have something similar in russian in the same way so it's this kind of like you need to really feel it right and that's the experiential part and so when we use technology and education right one of the things that technology can actually do is it can provide the experiential part it will be mediated for technology obviously it's not the same as going out there and doing the same thing in in, in you know in real life but um, taking history as an example, um, are you familiar with civilization? The game. Oh, is the game? Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm so, yeah, familiar. Yeah. So civilization um, really, it, it does have a lot of historical facts. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if it's 100% historic, historically accurate, but really what it does is it puts you in this environment where suddenly historical facts become part of your reality. Yes, it's a technology-mediated reality. In other words, you're not sitting there with Catherine the Great, you know? <laughs> but but in, in, in that moment, it becomes part of your kind of virtual reality, right? And so you suddenly, everything you do in that reality, it becomes meaningful to you because you, you have this context and it does give you certain types of experiences that you will never be able to get from just a lecture or even just um, abstract kind of discussions, right? Um, and so when technology becomes this experiential space, this is where we start seeing results. Um, and obviously, you know, other elements need to be in place because again, if your students have no motivation and they have no buy-in, if uh, the design is kind of there, but the pedagogical intent is not there, then again, mm. we might see results that are not as effective. But I really, um, there is this book by Kurt Squire. I forget the name right now. It's something like games, digital games in, in some, something about games and education. Um, and it is, it's an excellent book. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite books ever. Um, and he describes an experiment that um, he did, I think it was in summer camp or like some kind of summer program in the school in the US. And students who came to that program, they were studying history, but like they really didn't like it. So it was a challenge. And they played civilization 
um, for quite a while. I think it was at least a few weeks. And by the end of it, um, some of the students decided to be, you know, that they wanted to pursue politics. Other really got into history and they like started reading on their own. Obviously, there were differential effects depending on the student background, but overall, it was incredibly successful. Um, all because for them, technology became this place where they could experience things and form those spontaneous concepts in Vygotsky terms, like everyday concepts. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a game, right? Uh, we can use technology in other ways as well. For example, making connections. Like um, I do a lot of work related to Reddit, which is which mm -hmm. might be a controversial platform, right? Uh, this big forum. Are you familiar with Reddit? Just uh, somewhat, yeah. I, I, I've gone to Reddit for very specific things. Like it's, le I've been led there. But no, I'm, I'm not a, a regular. I'm not. I don't have an account or anything. Um, post. But just for those people who might not be familiar, it's this really big discussion forum platform. It's mostly populated, or I guess it's dominated by kind of American culture, but there are people from all over the world there, really. It's mostly English speaking, though. And um, it's kind of controversial because, on the one hand, it has this really open space for everyone to come there and post in interest based communities. Like, if you're interested in Korean history, there's definitely a community about. Korean history in there, I, I guarantee you. And so you can go to that community and connect to people from all over the world who share the same interest, right? Um, but it can also be really toxic because it's not always well moderated, depending on the subreddit. Um, and again, because it's interest-based, well, some per people share interests that might be more toxic than others, you know? Um, and But what's what really stands out to me on Reddit is that it gives you a space where if you go and look what people write, you would be blown away if you're an educator, because this is exactly what we're trying to get from students. And we just can't most of the times. Um, I would give you an example of um, Dungeons and Dragons because I like Dungeons and Dragons. So you go, you go on the Dungeons and Dragons subreddit and you open this pretty much any post and you see walls of text with mathematical calculations. We're talking like serious level math. It's not just some basic equations where people enthusiastically talk about how to optimize their characters and, you know, different characteristics of spells and stuff. And, and you look at this and you're like, obviously, I don't know the age of this person, but I think most of the people there tend to be on the younger side. And so it's very likely that this would never happen if they actually had to, to do a bunch of drills in a math class. So right. why, why are they doing this? And what is it about Reddit that is so inviting to people, right, to, to, to share their thinking? And it's not just that. Then you see, like, hundreds of comments with people actually criticizing or maybe agreeing or somehow engaging with, those, with that type of thinking. And it's really critical. Um, my, my research lab actually has a paper on that, and we analyze the type of reflection that we see on reddit and it's a lot of it is critical reflection so so we have this like random internet platform where people voluntarily go and do things that they would probably hate to do in the classroom so the question is what does this technology get right that we don't get right in the classroom right well yeah, I mean, one one variable that I think, you know, in, in listening, especially thinking about the history in, in particular um, or, you know, politics in general, but 
uh, as well, which is also classes I teach. Um, I, I think that when thinking about Reddit or Dungeons and Dragons or, or um, um, civilization even, I mean, I think the key word is imagination. You know, I think... I think one thing I try to do when I teach history is encourage them to, you know, my view is that on the one hand, I get it. Like if we're going for direct embodied experience, like, yes, you can't know what it's like to be a peasant living in 1860 Korea. Right. But I've, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a huge reader, but I have read quite a few fantasy series and, and I don't know what it's like to be like a, a peasant in some magical kingdom with like dragons and people fighting with like magic. But I can imagine it and I can feel very part of it, you know. And so that's always like kind of my um, metaphor is that like imagination is like what I always tell students like this is one of my standard pitches is like one of the the worst things you ever learn is that like, oh, you know, imagination, that's what kids do. They have imaginary friends and they, they make up stuff. And it's like imagination is like kind of what how we make the world, you know. I mean, there's no I mean, even the school system, we imagined that. There's no, you know, there's no like, there's no like set, like, you know, guidebook that says like, we should go to school for 12 years. And then we have these things called university, you know, Mm -hmm. um, like that's all imagined, you know? And so to the extent that you can, you know, and so what I say is too, is that's where you can also draw upon like common humanity, right? Like, yeah, you're not going to be a pet. You're not going to understand the the kind of lived experience of, of an, of a peasant in 1860 Korea. I'm in a small village, but, but they're still a human like you. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and actually 1860 and well, that's a, a big mission of mine is to convince them that that is not a long time ago. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, one, one, one little um, method I've found that I think is really effective is I always have them. I don't make them tell me because maybe it's personal information, but like think, you know, write down when your grandparents were born and then write down when your parents were born. Right. Mm-hmm. And then like a lot of things, because not just in the Korean history class, I teach a lot of things centered around like, um, um, political economy and things that change like colonialism, de- you know, process of um, anti-colonial wars and struggles. And I'd say like, think about colonialism. Like you probably think about this like ancient old time, but like really most colonial regimes fell apart in the 1950s. And I guarantee your grandparents were alive and well. And like, so you know people, most of you, who were very much alive. Mm-hmm. And I think that really changes their thinking. You know, like just, even though it's just a, you know, you could argue it's just a kind of trite truism, Putting it that way, like, you know, your grandparents or most of you do know your grandparents and your grandparents were alive during all of this. So, you know, somebody directly who was living during this period that gives you an idea that it's not some ancient history. You know what I mean? So, like, I, I think there are ways to kind of make those connections um, more personal. But I, I always go back to imagination, you know, um, I, I often use that motif when I teach politics uh, of the fantasy novel, like fantasy novels have these um, series have this idea of like world building. Mm-hmm. And in some ways that to me, that's like my metaphor for like what political culture is. It's like world building, you know, or social culture. Yeah. We're just kind of, mm-hmm. we're just, we're just building worlds. I mean, we're not, you know, and that doesn't, I mean, it's not like some hardcore like POMO, like nothing matters. I mean, I think in some ways these things, the interesting thing is these are like mental constructions that take on a sort of realness and in and, and some sense of permanent, like, you know, but that, that is like, you know, the, 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 the line between something someone imagines and then something that becomes like a, a kind of accepted truism that like guides and shapes actual, like to go to the Skinner, you know, observable behavior is I think a, a, a much more direct connection than, than a lot of students often realize. Like they have the like 
there's imagined world and ideal world. And then there's like a lot of students are like a real world. And I'm like, those are very much in conversation with each other all the time. Yeah. So I guess that's one, yeah. one way. And I don't know. So that all came up when talking about why these things work. I think it triggers imagination. I don't know. What do you think? That's always my key kind of thinking about learning or um, having students become enthusiastic about these things is, is using imagination. Yeah. I think um, when I talk about embodied experience, um, and again, it's like one of those terms that kind of people throw around a lot in the educational um, domain, but really just to make sure we, we all understand what it means, right? It's the experience that we get from all of our senses, but it doesn't mean that it has to happen in like physically sensible world. In other words, when you refer to imagination, it is another type of embodied, embodied experience, in my opinion, right? Um, and I'll, I'm going to give an example based on Dungeons and Dragons again, because I was part of a pretty long campaign, which lasted for about two years. And everything I did in that campaign, um, with, with my character, obviously, you know, none of that took place in, in real time and space. I guess, you know, we, we threw the, the dice and... Um, you know, we, we role played, I guess. Right. But there was that, but I wasn't the one fighting dragons. I wasn't the one, uh, doing all of the crazy acrobatic things that my character did, but because I did it in my imagination and we had a really good storyteller, um, as a dungeon master and it was very vivid. Mm. So to me, it felt real. And so that imagination, my imagination became a space for, creating that embodied experience so i think yeah absolutely what you were saying and, and what i'm saying these two connect um it's just you can think about about it in more um i guess applied kind of real world terms and what's happening in your imagination but it they are basically the same things right well and i think you know and i said it just um i, I guess it, it seems very similar it obviously comes from a little bit of a different um tradition, intellectual tradition, but I always think about like um, the German sociologist uh, Max Weber kind of had this idea of, um, you know, that how we navigate the social world is we think about like, I am a teacher and then we go in and they say, well, what does, you know, we, we inhabit roles, right? I mean, it, it's similar to what you're saying about like, you know, uh, you didn't know what to do at the coffee shop in Japan or America. And then you try to say, well, what, you know, and, and, and in the Weber, you know, Weber's view, you're like, you're trying to figure out like, what does a coffee shop customer do? Like, I am now in the role of coffee shop customer. And like, what does that role require? You know, in some ways, it, it, it I guess, connects with role playing, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, and that the, the, the motif of like, you know, inhabiting roles and um, what Weber called like a logic of kind of appropriateness. Like we try to match our behavior to what we feel is appropriate with X. I am a college professor. What does a college professor do? Again, we try to inhabit roles. And that doesn't mean we lose all individuality, but our individuality tends to kind of manifest it through the contours of how we think about these roles. And I, I wanted to spin that into a, a, a question about, like thinking about like what is learning and like what are schools? Um, maybe this is changing, but I've, I've always been persuaded that um, and I think it's connected to what the um, um, education psychologist you mentioned earlier, who, who the, the unnamed yet quite important educational psychologist, so we say, <laughs> a lot of what's going on in school is learning how to inhabit roles, right? Uh, like what, what someone's learning is, you know, if you're going through like an elite course of education, as much as learning like 
you know, a lot about history or like very advanced maths, which is like part of it, you're learning, you know, how to inhabit a certain behavioral role that comports with somebody who is going to do um, very advanced professional work. Does that, you know, so it's, it's almost like we're, we're you know, and that, that's an old kind of old school Marxist take on, on education. And I'm, I'm not going all the way down that road. I mean, I think there is other parts of it, but that, you know, ed, that that's what education institutions, particularly in the United States are often geared towards, um, is shaping people to fulfill certain roles within society. Um, and, and that a university above and beyond whatever a student learns, because that's a big thing, like what do students learn at university? Um, probably a lot of what they learn is like, again, how to um, inhabit these these roles that are in, in certain behaviors. And, you know, and, and it's, uh, that's why I like the coffee shop example you gave. Like, it's like that, but probably on a much larger scale. Like, what does somebody who's a professional act like? What do they do? What, you know, what kinds of things do they know? I used to have a, a professor, he was a favorite professor, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying this in a, in a negative way, but he was a geogra geographer and just really one of those people that were just like outstandingly brilliant. And you, I, I did, I would just listen to him and it was just such a joy and, and never had any problem just listening to him speak because it was just such a, there was so much energy and enthusiasm and, and knowledge. And he would just say stuff like, this is something an intelligent person should know. And what he's saying is that if you want to present yourself as cultured and educated, this is something you should know, you know, which is <laughs> a very interesting, you know, and, and, I, and I said, I'm not saying that in a critical way. I mean, I think, but that was, but it, it made me think about what, you know, the idea of education as preparing someone to fulfill certain social roles. I don't know. So that's, what, what do you think? I, I, what, what's your take? Oh my God, there's so much I want to say about this. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> nice, go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the first thing I'm going to say is related to the framework proposed by James Paul G, who I think in 2003 published a book um, that's called What We Can Learn, What Video Games Can Teach Us About um, Literacy. And in that book, he brings up the idea of semiotic domains, um, which is quite easy to explain for an example rather than a definition. Um, for example, think about AAU students. AAU students share the same semiotic domain. Um, in other words, there are participants in that domain. So they, he calls it affinity group. Uh, these are people who engage in some kind of social practices typical for this group. And then there is a, a content part of the domain. So they all you know, they, they take particular courses and they engage in um, particular activities together. So uh, if you think about uh, Korean history as a semiotic domain, the content would be everything, all of the information related to the, the history itself. Um, and then the semiotic domain of Korean history would be composed of people who teach it, who learn it, who are interested in it, people who write books about it, right? And so um, you can think about semiotic domains as a set of social practices that communicate some kind of meanings for different types of symbols, right? For example, um, I really like metal music. And so metal or being a metalhead is being part of a semiotic domain in which um, when I hear music, I can instantly tell if it's metal or not. I use particular patterns of content that I generated through engaging with this, with this domain um, to identify which content is appropriate and which is not in the domain of um, metal music, right? So if I hear Britney Spears, 
like I know immediately it's not metal music. Right. Well, and and then I would imagine if you like went to a metal concert, you would, you know, and, and maybe not a hundred percent with a hundred percent accuracy, be able to distinguish by behavior, dress, how people stand, how they talk, who else is a is a quote unquote authentic true metalhead and who isn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. That's- and so like being a metalhead is like inhabiting a role beyond just like recognizing certain music, but a, a certain kind of behavior, a way of dress, yes. a way. Of- and, and that's exactly the connection I'm trying to make, except, mm. except from this perspective, it's not about an individual role. It's about taking on an identity within the social group. Right. And this identity, um, it always has. Um, so he calls it a project, uh, projected identity, I think. Yeah. Projected identity. So, it's when your real world identity comes in contact with the with a typical identity, he calls it virtual identity, in this particular domain. So in other words, um, when you engage in that affinity group, you kind of form an identity um, that is very similar to what a typical person in the group would do, right? So if if I'm a metalhead, if I'm part of that affinity group, when I go to concerts, I don't just stand there in the background and like, I don't know, dance R&B, right? I, I bang my head and I... I, I, I love I, that I, you just said I bang my head. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I go to mosh pits and whatnot, you know, if, nice. if I feel if I feel really like I need a, an energy release right. um, and, and like I move in a particular way, right? And it's like there's a certain set of practices associated with being a metalhead. Right. right. But it's necessarily, it's not an individual role. It's always embedded within the social context. Sure. So, and that's, I think. So like jumping in a group and like starting shoving everybody, like normally would be like, whoa, like maybe that person needs some help. But but like in the metalhead context, they're like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Actually, well, no, if, if you become part of a mosh pit, people are mostly respectful. Like if somebody falls down, everybody stops and they help. So like, I mean, obviously, you know, some people might get carried away, but like really there's like a code of behavior. Right. Well, that's even, that's even another level. Like it's a, it's a controlled kind of a controlled anarchy, like a, a, a regulated yes. anarchy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. And I think what's interesting, as I said, like, you know, you're, you're drawing from a, a, a tradition that comes out of psychology, educational psychology, um, and, and so forth. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming with like good old, you know, Max Weber. But I mean, they're basically, yeah, saying like, this, it's a similar thing. Like, we're, we're, we're our, you know, and I think Weber offered this as like a critique of kind of abstract rationality or kind of like a priori, like outside of anything else, like we're just rational, but like we're rational within these roles. Mm-hmm. But the, the the thing is, so you mentioned that for, for Weber, it's more like you're preparing to take a certain role in the society. From uh, James Paul G's perspective, you're not preparing, you're actually taking on that role in the learning process. So learning is becoming part of different semiotic domains and adopting the social practices associated with those domains. But we can learn in the more passive way in which, for example, I can recognize that this music is metal and I can recognize that I need to do certain things in a metal concert. But there is a step above that. And this is what we want in education. And this is at the level of critical and reflective thinking, right? Which again, terms that are thrown around quite a lot, but like nobody can really define them. Um, But the idea is you start thinking about the whole system of the social domain from a meta level perspective. Mm. um, And you, you can innovate in that system. And for for G, it's kind of 
like that's the essence, right? So when we uh, try to engage students in semiotic domains, we want them to go to this level where they start analyzing the system of the social of the sort of the semiotic domain itself. Right. Um, so from the perspective of like I'm thinking about history right now because again because you teach his- history, right? Well, uh, I'm not a historian, but I, because of my background, I do, and we're a small school, I do teach this history of modern Korea, which basically overlaps with the period I study. But um, yeah, right. so right. I, I don't want to misrepresent, I'm not a historian, but I do teach a history course. And yeah, but it's been right. a, a challenge, but I really enjoyed over years now, I really had to learn a lot to be able to be a good, you know, what I think is a good, good instructor. So it's been, it's been a worthwhile challenge. Right. So in, you know, I just... I don't know why it, it it comes up like is as a good example. Well, it comes up as a good example in my in my mind right now. So I'm going to use that if that's okay. Sure, you sure. Just... Yeah, no, please do. So if we consider what you teach is semiotic domain of this particular Korean history, maybe of this particular period, right? The um, when students uh, try to become part of that domain again, they can approach it in a more passive way, which would be kind of trying to master the content relevant, uh, maybe certain historical facts relevant to this period, right? And um, trying to answer the questions of when when people who belong to that domain, the affinity group, uh, how how do they talk about this? What kind of jargon do they use? What's appropriate to talk about even like in their particular domain? So that would be a more passive way to approach it. It's more active than usual, but still. And then the next step would be, okay, now that I see the patterns of, of how things worked in that era, how can I explain the current political system uh, from this perspective, right? Using that information. And then um, can I create new understandings or new perspective on what's going on right now, or maybe criticize certain views from the past based on all of the practices that I became familiar with? Um, So that becomes a more critical, more reflective learning. This is exactly what we want. But it's not really achievable if we do education in a teacher centered passive way, right? Right. Well, and, and I often have a. I think in in terms of teaching modern Korean history, um, because obviously a, lot, a a huge significant period and, and important role was the the colonization by Japan, um, and I'm able to say that maybe you're really curious why Japan and Korea still have these very um, contentious relations. I would say that it's, I can I can flatly say, and, and I think this is a good way to get them um, intrigued, is that you cannot understand these contemporary kind of disputes without understanding kind of the history. And you're going to be able to have a much deeper and richer appreciation for their foundations by understanding the sources in the past that were chosen by both societies over alternatives, right? That, um, and, and I think that's why history is always fascinating for me is... Um, you know, there's, there's a line, I can't remember the author, but he said, you know, studying history in an intensive way is, is always a critical act because it's to, to appreciate that one road was taken over another and that, um, you know, trying to understand why that was done and what political or social forces pushed it in one direction or another is, is itself a critical act, is, is, a, is a kind of um, investigatory act that can reveal a lot about the present, right? Yeah, that absolutely. And yeah, I mean, if the if the big physics question is like why, or the big metaphysical question is why is there something instead of nothing? Uh, for me, the big political economy or or you know historical politics kind of question is like why is it this and not that? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think you know in a very simplistic way, but I think that's always like why a way that I not just history but you know politics in general. I, I have a very historical slant and 
how I think about politics and political economy. So most of what I really am trying to think about is that you inhabit like a, a world that was created. And, it, and you can't understand the world you live in now unless you understand the processes that, you know, like you can eat the bread and you're eating the bread, but you'll know a lot more about that bread if you know, if you watch how it was made, I guess, you know, like in, 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 in what, in what steps went into making that bread, like, you know, right, right now we're just, you know, but if you, and I think understand that's a, that's a whole different way to, cause that's a big keyword I use in my classes is location, right? We're, I always use the, uh. No, not that any of them know who the doors are, but I always use the, the you know, riders on the storm, like, you know, that line into this world we're thrown, right? Which is an, an existential kind of motif, right? But, and I'm not teaching existentialism, but I'm just saying like, you, you know, you're thrown into this world and like a lot of our mission is like trying to figure out like our location in, in a bigger sense, not just geographically, but socially, historically, um, you know, we're existing in a time and that time is, is, is from somewhere. You know, and, and, and it's, and it's not, it did, it, it, it's, and it's not the result of like, it's not like growing a plant, like put a bunch of people here, add water and you get Japan, you know, <laughs> like, like it's not, that's not how it works. You know, it's about politics. It's about choices. It's about struggles. It's about victors and defeats and, and so forth. Right. Like, um, you know, so yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think that's a lot of a way to make, you know, the imagination come alive, but I, circling back, I guess to put a little bit more of my cards on the table, not that I was withholding them, but to, I guess, <laughs> you know, what, what's been really fascinating to me is I, I, so that's kind of my little shtick is studying, you know, in Korean political economy and in, in particularly like its modern history, um, especially from the 1940s kind of on in the post-colonial era in South Korea. And obviously South Korea is known as this, like, you know, the quote unquote economic miracle. I, I, I don't like the term, but that's a, like a kind of like, wow, this miraculous growth. And it, it really has an impressive story in its, in its own right. I mean, within the literature, within like a lot of people who are very sharp, very knowledgeable of these things, it's like a stock truism that one of the big reasons Korea was able to achieve this rapid level of, of industrialization and urbanization and so forth in like three or four decades uh, was its investment in education. So it's a big part of the story. It's a big like causal kind of part of the story is this like investment in human resource, you know, development, right? Education. Mm -hmm. And I've really recently come across some contemporaneous studies that have like really thrown up, you know, because I just, I've always found that story to be a little too tidy. You know, so that's something that always throws me off. And when you're in like in a literature and like there's a story that like kind of everyone just like repeats and, and, and I'm like, and it's just too tidy. Um, and so I've recently come across some, some really interesting studies from like the seventies and eighties, you know, just that's, you know, one, one of the weird things I do, I go find like stuff that was written 50 years ago. <laughs> and I mean, that's another thing we, we have this kind of like, you know, in, in a lot of like things we really put an emphasis on like more present knowledge is must be better. And like I've often found that stuff written in you know 50 years ago can be as good, if not better, than present stuff. So, and a lot of those studies, I mean, like what a lot of the conclusions are is there's just no real em empirical evidence that played a major role, at least in the initial stages, um, in the first decade, decade and a half. And really, one of one of the one of this group of authors um, put out a book in 1980, this big massive study. It was a mix of American and Korean academics. And like, there's these lines in there that I just found so illuminating because they're like, no, really like what this education did system was took people in, in from who were from rural areas who lived on like, you know, farming areas and taught them how to be functionaries, taught them obedience, taught them to follow the, because this was a military dictatorship, mm -hmm. a very repressive and, and one with massive amounts of surveillance and taught them to like obey and go to work. 
Like it wasn't about like learning like technical skills or like, you know, they didn't. And like actually during this period, like the, the government severely limited access to higher education. Right. So this wasn't really it's like so they said, you know, one of the lines was almost like verbatim quote is like what what they learned was how to be obedient workers. They didn't learn. And, and in some ways, what's interesting is they weren't saying these guys weren't Marxists. I mean, a lot of these guys are very much like this. They were writing this almost in a favorable way. Right. So uh-huh. this wasn't even written in a critical way, which I think actually gives it more um, weight in terms of, of as a, a, a kind of. And they're just saying, like, that's what that's what really was what, what education, what when we talk about human capital wasn't about, again, them learning math or science or like becoming more critical thinkers. It was quite the opposite. Like the government controlled the education system and developed the curriculum in a way that was like laudatory towards the regime to shape individuals to be able to go to work and 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 buy into the government's kind of mass narrative about like why obedience to the state was necessary. You know, so and I think that's interesting to me because I think obviously now a lot more Koreans, Koreans has one of the highest levels of like tertiary education completement and it, it doesn't tell us, you know, but I just think that tidy story like, oh, they all these Koreans went to school and they learned a whole bunch of stuff and then they became really rich. And that's like what happened. It's like, no, 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 no. And and I think it, it also is is a bit misleading. The kind of idea of, of education as like it, like you just go and get it's like skill acquisition, you mm-hmm. know. Because I, I just don't think even for like really people who go to like very wealthy and, and, and highly regarded schools, like more than learning skills, they're learning, as you mentioned, how to embed themselves or be, or not learning, but actually becoming embedded in these like, what do you call semiotic domains, domains, right? As much as like they're, they're learning calculus and all these things, which is, I guess, important and, and good, fine, but like that's not really what's going on. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's not that that's not what's going on. Like that's not the like that's not the heart of the story. The heart of the story is, I think, much more of this like semiotic domains. They're like learning to be around other wealthy people. They're learning mannerisms. They're they're getting connections. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. and that's why there's these big fights every year for these kids to get into these prestigious kindergartens in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it's not because the, the, the kids are going to learn more. It's because they're going to be embedded in you know in, in embedded in these communities that are going to be future access to other kind of development. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just really skeptical of the skill acquisition because going to like relying on education to do everything, not just like technology and education, but I grew up in America in the 90s and, you know, during like the, you know, when a lot of um, manufacturing jobs left and so forth. And the big thing is like, oh yeah, well, everyone's just going to go to school and it will all get worked out. And like that didn't happen in any way. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only reason, but I mean, a lot of people who voted for Trump were people from those communities that were told, oh, yeah, all these all these, you know, reasonably paying jobs are going to go overseas. But we're, everyone's going to go to college or community college and it's going to all work out. And it's like, that's totally not what happened. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. thank you for sharing the the story about uh, the Korean education. Right. Because I actually didn't know that this is fascinating. Mm. And and I think we can still see that in a lot of educational systems. I mean, I'm I'm even I'm thinking more about the Russian education system right now because my mm. mom actually works um, in in education. She teaches um, middle and sec- uh, like uh, secondary education, mm. middle school and uh, high school. And really, um, I, I get a lot of the information from her about how the curriculum changes because she has to deal with a lot of like scheduling and. Um, uh, meeting the standards and things like that. Mm. And 
they're trying to introduce a lot of things that would look the government look in a certain way. And I'm not saying it's always bad. I mean, you know, the, right. there is a certain degree of appreciating the culture of your own country and, and the history, which I think needs to be there. Mm. But I could see how, how fast it's changing in response to whatever is happening politically. Um, and I don't see much critical thinking embedded in those types of curriculum, not just in Russia, but it's it's the same in the US and it's, you know, I'm sure it's the same in Japan. So definitely there's a political agenda um, right. behind well, those decisions. What was fascinating, Creek, so actually, you know, in, in my, in my, you know, this is actually, I told you I'm, I'm sending off an article today out into the, out into, I'm sending, I feel like <laughs> it's like you're sending your kid off to like yeah. summer camp. I'm like putting this out in the world. <laughs> I have a good job. I wish, I hope you do good at camp. But also, but, also, but also it's kind of like, oh, I'm finally in empty nester. I can do my own R stuff. Well, yeah, that's when you go home. But this is like, I'm still at the bus station. Like, okay. <laughs> and if don't, I hope the kids aren't mean to you. <laughs> so, but I'm um, no, and, and I mean, one of the things I also dug up in, in this, because the, the article that I'm putting out, a big part of this is kind of pushing back against this kind of narrative of, of like this tidy narrative of human resource kind of development um, as like the key source of, of Korea's initial kind of developmental um, burst or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. And um, I found this dissertation. I think that, I think he probably had gone there as a Mormon missionary. It was, it was from um, uh, University of Arizona, but I think he had originally gone to Korea as a missionary and then went back to do some PhD research. But I mean, this is, so he did like field work in Korea um, in the seventies on the education system. And he wrote his PhD dissertation on it. And I found this and I was like, whole, I mean, I paid like 20 bucks, you know, I was mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm definitely reading this. And it was amazing. Um, and one of the things he really found was that as the dictatorship, which in the, one of the, well, the dictatorship that began in, in 61, um, by 68, they, they issued this national charter on education. And what he found is that actually contra to the, again, the, the skills story, um, more more in the education was was centered around what they called moral development, mm -hmm. right? About teaching kids what is like right and wrong, and 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 a lot of these moral lessons were about like working hard, not being jealous of those who have more, and and, and you know about like basically trying to shape someone's kind of um, moral and ethical bearings as much as mm -hmm. it was about teaching them kind of advanced math or science, you know. Um, which, yeah. which, which is, uh, you know, I thought really fascinating. Um, and I, I think we're rediscovering this in some ways, at least in, in, um, in research on education in the U.S. and the projects that I've seen so far. There is a lot more emphasis on um, socio-emotional learning and mm. kind of like those, like discussing those moral issues and seeing education more as a character development, which was actually precisely how it was treated in the USSR. And then across the world, it kind of started shifted to this vocational-based, kind of skill-based education where you have particular skills that you need to train. So kind of like training as opposed to, to holistic character development. And I'm not sure if this is necessarily the right direction to go. It doesn't need to be one or the other, but I, I mean, particularly in the, in this case, like this was very pernicious. I mean, I, I have no problem saying, and at least in Korea, it was very pernicious. I mean, because this was, I mean, this was, you know, the 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 underlying conditions that people, uh, you know, women were working in near kind of like you know quasi slave like conditions where they were locked in places, they were like you know 
people were injected with with amphetamines to work harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these were you know this was connected to a very very repressive system of of like labor and labor control, right? And so um, it, there there is a world, and I, and I as I mentioned before, I'm a big fan of Rousseau, who was a, obviously a, a pioneer of this notion of of education as a kind of and you know he's obviously building on Plato, right? Of a like. A, a virtue and, and morals and an ethical bearing is like the foundation of any sort of good educational mm-hmm. system. And I think there is some truth to that. But like you said, it can be very dangerous because in the wrong hands, it it's, you know, it can be used to legitimate um, or or to create, inculcate people with a certain reverence or acceptance of authorities that are very repressive and 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 quite violent and dangerous. So yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like a live wire, you know? It, it actually, uh, there's, there's someone I want to mention in relation to Rousseau and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I remember, his idea of education was kind of like, you take the kid to like a kind of rural almost environment mm. and, 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 you know, the education is very natural away from corrupt society. Right. And that, I think that was the main idea, right? Right. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, and we're talking about the Emil, just for the yeah, listeners. That yeah, was his yeah, big yeah. treatise on education. Yeah, I I actually remember reading that book in uh, my educational philosophy course. We had really lively debates about that. But um, what the reason why I'm mentioning it right now is because um, you you asked me, so what is education? What is learning really? And I want to try and give an answer to that, which is probably not going to be really like 100% concrete and specific, but I want to use the philosophy of John Dewey, who was a really famous American pragmatist. And a lot of my work builds on his philosophy of democratic education. But one of the most, so he would disagree with Rousseau entirely. And uh, one of the most famous quotes from Dewey is, education is not preparation for life. Education is life itself. So what he means by that is he was also um, really into political philosophy and he talked a lot about democracy, but not necessarily as a political regimen, but more like um, a way of life. So for him, democracy was just how people ideally should live um, as, as a global society and also like local communities. And the idea there is that obviously, you know, big groups are kind of they're divided into smaller groups of people, but they all pursue they have their own interests, but also they all have a shared interest of advancing the human condition. In other words, making human life better and making societies better. And so for that, they need to come together and have those open channels of communication where they can bring up different issues and then they solve different problems together and form new shared understandings and and they create new shared goals as well, right? And so for that to happen, you really need a very particular type of education because those people need to be able to problem solve. They need to be able to think like scientists in that, you know, they they form hypotheses about the world, they test them, they reflect on the result, and then they adjust. Um, but really what he meant by this quote, right, education is life itself, is that for him, school is a reflect, not even a reflection, it's an in- integral part of larger society. So whatever is happening in the larger society should take place in schools as well. And his entire educational philosophy was based on that. So basically, the goal of education is to keep to keep learning and to to uh, be able to kind of be part of of the larger and of lo- local communities 
for your experiences, right? And so from, from that perspective, um, learning content was definitely not the most important thing because you really can't do anything about this content unless you can um, communicate effectively and, and problem solve with other people in a way that is, uh, is very productive and civil, right? And so for him, um, the, that, that's why the way education should be structured is very different um, compared to, to what we see in traditional education. It's all student-centered student and um, it is kind of focused around students' interests and it's, it's process-based in that um, students kind of have their own backgrounds and their own goals that they want to pursue. And so the role of the teacher is to steer them kind of like help them achieve those goals, but also help them come together as a community and integrate them as part of the larger community of, of society. Um, and really there's, there's a lot going on there. Obviously can't explain all of this in a couple of minutes, but the main idea is schools are to practice democracy because that's how we live. We'll live as a democracy. Um, and again, democracy here is a larger term. It's kind of like, um, like, it's the ideal way of living for Dewey, right? So right. if schools do not help students become part of the larger community through this democratic practice, then then we get all of the um, all of the societal problems that we have now. That's the gist of it. Right on. No, and I think there is some certain, and I'm not as familiar with Dewey, but I mean, just hearing your ex explanation of it, a very very good one. Um, I think there, you know, it, it does, I think, see, have a lot of overlap with Rousseau's view, um, which was because his his character was was um, his kind of ultimate um, goal of education was the production of, of citizen in, in the in the ancient sense. And the citizen is one who is able to um, uh, live and express and, and understand themselves with with attention to the needs of the wider community. Well, well, there is a fundamental difference, though, because Rousseau wanted to produce an active citizen, and Dewey said they are already citizens, and right. they just they just get to practice it um, in in a more in a safer environment, the one that is not constrained by financial interest, economic interest, and so on and so forth. And again, for Dewey, you should not remove the the child from from society. In fact, the children should be completely integrated in society. So I think that's a very different perspective. Right. Well, yeah, no, no. I, and I said, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I have, uh, an interest in Rousseau, but I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to get onto a shaky ground. Um, so no, I, I, you know, but just in, just in the sense of this connection between, um, you know, cultivation of a civic mindedness, right. And, and whether the, you know, the, it seems they obviously have a different idea of like the environment or, or how that should be done. And the Emil was kind of an ideal type, right. I mean, it was meant to be like an extreme example yeah. to, to, to sort out kind of some, um, what, you know, what, what the goal of education should be. But, um, whereas I think Dewey was much more pragmatic and thinking about like an actual, so in some ways the projects are a bit different, but I, I do think that, that uh, like a certain civic mindedness, right. A, no, a notion of, of how one is supposed to act civically, um, is, is, is fundamental, um, to this. And, and I think it gets to a, a bigger question of, and, and I think, you know, from Dewey, we can we can also think about um, expanding our notion of what it means to live in a democratic society and what a true democratic society looks like, and that kind of also harkens to like a lot of the Frankfurt School, right? That you know, if you if you live in a if you're in a democratic society, but you're controlled at your work and you have no money and you can't do anything, like are you are you living a free life, 
you know, and I think Dewey's kind of question, if you, if you don't have a kind of requisite set of knowledge or um, the cultivation of a certain, uh, you know, set of dispositions, um, is it really possible to say you're living in a democratic society? Um, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think just to kind of go back to the original uh, larger topic of our conversation today, mm. right? So the one of the questions that I often I'm often asked is, um, so how do we use technology in education? Like, what do we do, right? And I think my answer to that, apart from it depends, obviously, because that's that's how I answer most of my questions. <laughs> um, it's to start thinking about those more, I guess, deeper philosophical and theoretical perspectives, not because they are valuable just in and of itself. Um, I'm actually really practically minded and I don't like theories that much, but they really provide a different uh, kind of understanding of what education could be because we're all a product of our educational and, and overall social environment. And um, sometimes we just don't question certain things. Like, like um, I, I like to ask my students things like, why are all of the chairs and desks in this room face on the whiteboard? Why can't we sit? Why do we have to use the light? Like if we're just discussing things, can we turn off the light? Have you ever used, I don't know, songs in, in your learning, you know, not, not maybe in language learning, but like, why don't we sing as an educational method? Or why, why don't we have classes outside? And these, these, these are very simple examples, but when you start asking, or for example, why do we need grades? Does homework actually work? Does it, is it actually helpful? So stuff like that, right? And, and when I start questioning them and they, and they sit there and they're like, oh yeah, I never ask those questions before. So because we're so conditioned by our prior experiences and by our environment, we don't even start questioning those types of experiences. And I think that's a really good first step. And, and then those theories really help you do that. But really my advice would be if you want to use technology um, in a pedagogically sound way, right? you really should start thinking about learning first and then technology as a tool to get you there, right? So like I said, um, giving students an iPad and then hoping for the best is not gonna cut it. <laughs> you, right. really, you really need to say, okay, let's say if you think about education from the perspective of um, introducing students to this social practice, this the set of social practices within the semiotic domain, then you can say, okay, how can they use, let's say Reddit as a way to get students in touch with that type of lifestyle or that type of thinking. And if you go from there, this is where the real impact of technology is going to be seen. So that would be my advice in terms of, and I know it's not necessarily the most concrete one, but it definitely is a way to go when it comes to using technology in education. So thinking about it from the more philosophical and, and um, I guess, theoretical perspective. Can't believe I'm saying that. I'm really not a theory person. <laughs> well, well, you know, yeah, you've, you've backed yourself into, into the theory realm. No, but Elena, yeah. thank you so much. Um, yeah, we, we, you know, I really enjoyed um, talking about this and, and actually um, in, in the true, in the true um, spirit of John Dewey, um, I, f I feel that I have um, learned a great deal, not only about from, from you, but also being forced to um, just, you know, not forced, but, um, in the process of discussing these things, kind of shaking up my own, um, ideas about this and, and have learned quite a bit. And, and th these are things that you talked about, I think are, 
um, you know, for anybody listening, myself included, who um, is is in the morass of of being an educator, um, these are are things that are are worth thinking about, and and actually things that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that was that I really appreciate that. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was a fantastic conversation. I'm looking forward to more. All right, cool. <laughs> and have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you too.